Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Interview, a podcast that presents conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. And this week I'm joined by Chris Wallace, a veteran journalist who has covered Washington, D.C. for decades and now serves as the anchor of Fox News Sunday. I called him up this week to discuss the coronavirus outbreak at the White House that put the president in the hospital and dozens of others in quarantine. We also spoke about Trump's dramatic return to the White House from Walter Reed, the insane first presidential debate, Wallace's own exposure to the virus, and his response to critics of his performance as moderator. Chris Wallace is the anchor of Fox News Sunday and author of best-selling book Countdown 1945. He served as the moderator of the first presidential debate last week, an event that was watched by more than 70 million Americans as they vote and prepare to vote for the next president. Chris, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, Aiden. So first off, you shared a debate stage with President Trump last week, uh, who days later tested positive for the coronavirus and was hospitalized. You tested negative for the virus on Monday, which is great news. I'm wondering, are you nervous? How are you feeling about that whole ordeal? Well, I'm not feeling nervous now because I tested negative. But um, sure, it was an anxious few days, and it wasn't just me. My wife and four of my children came to the debate, and I was in close contact with them afterwards, um, especially before we knew that the president had tested positive, which we didn't find out until, uh, what, Thursday night, Friday morning. Um, so uh, there was a certain concern about it, of course. I, you know, I, I somehow thought I wasn't going to have it. I wasn't that close to him. But, you know, when I talked to the Cleveland Clinic, they said that the president, former Vice President Biden, and I were in a special uh, circle of vulnerability because we were the only people on the stage without masks. So that was you know, that was concerning. I got a test on first thing Monday morning, as did my my family uh, at Johns Hopkins. And, you know, as I say, I didn't think I had it. But you, as you sit there and wait and <laughs> it's always well, nerve wracking for her, my wife got the clean bill of health at about two in the afternoon. We had it at nine in the morning. They said, not going to know until seven. Uh, mm. And she got the clean bill at two or three. And then I'm sort of like, well, why aren't we? getting the same, <laughs> we, we found out we were all clear too. So, you know, it's not, it's not the uh, happiest period of time you're spending waiting to find out whether or not you've got COVID. Sure. Now, we still don't know because the White House is sort of being, uh, they're declining to answer these questions when Trump actually last tested negative. Uh, it, it, do you have any sort of fear or does it bother you at all that he may have been positive at the debate? Um, putting those people at risk? Oh, well, you know, I think it's almost certain that he uh, had COVID at that time. Interestingly enough, you know, you learn a lot of things. One of the reasons why I, uh, you know, was exposed on Tuesday and didn't uh, have the test until Monday is it, you know, six days later, is it takes a certain amount of time for the virus to load. So there's a real possibility in the very earliest stages of your infection that it'll you'll get a false negative. Uh, and when I was talking to the experts at the, <clears throat> excuse me, at Johns Hopkins, they said, you really ought to wait five or six days 
because that's the first time that you'll get a reliable test. And if it's a negative, then you can pretty much rely on it. Yeah, it's not going to manifest enough by, you know, the first couple of days of exposure to, exactly. to actually test. Exactly. No, no, I, 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 look, I, yeah. so I don't blame him for that. I, what I was more troubled by um, was the, the failure of the first family and some top aides to wear masks uh, in the audience because the, the rules of the, of the Cleveland Clinic were absolutely clear, which was everybody except for the president, the vice president and I were to wear masks. And while they walked in with masks, uh, Melania and Ivanka and uh, Don Jr. and Kimberly and all, Eric, all of them took <laughs> off their masks. And uh, so did Mark Meadows, the chief of staff. And, um, you know, I didn't know the full thing. I was certainly aware that they weren't wearing their masks and I was troubled by that. Um, you know, it later turned out that somebody from the Cleveland Clinic actually came over to them and asked them to put on their masks and they declined to do so. And I just think that showed a, a, a remarkable disregard for uh, the risk of the virus and for the safety of other people in the hall. Yeah. And you, you actually asked uh, Trump campaign advisor Steve Cortez about this on your show on Sunday. And he really he didn't give an answer as to why the first family was disregarding the rules. I he feel like an it's... answer. He gave an answer, which is that they had tested negative and that they were socially distanced. Yeah. The, 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 in, in terms of their uh, having negative tests, it didn't matter. Everybody in that hall had had a negative test. Uh, there was no um, there was no exemption for somebody if your last name was Trump. And as far as social distancing, uh, Steve Cortez was just wrong. They were all <laughs> within uh, a few feet of each other. And obviously we know this is an airborne disease that goes and, and you know, uh, we were all inside. It Again, it just showed an utter disregard for the risks and an uh, and attitude as if the rules that applied to everybody else didn't apply to them. I, I think it was, uh, I think it was very concerning on their part. Yeah. And, you know, I, I did feel like that moment was a little bit symbolic in how the current White House has treated the pandemic so far. Um, there's been sort of contradictory messaging on masks uh, and it, it sort of conveyed a little bit of lack of seri seriousness about it. Do you think that that in light of the president testing positive coronavirus and so many people in the White House also testing positive, do you think that that's going to change a little bit? Do you think we're going to see the first family wearing masks a lot more and at, at least perhaps some of the rhetoric changing around uh, the pandemic? Um, well, first of all, <laughs> I, I think I'm a pretty good reporter, but trying to predict what uh, Donald Trump and the people around him are going to do is, <laughs> is way above my pay grade. So I, I, I don't have a clue. Uh, so far, at least, it hasn't changed the rhetoric at all. Uh, the president, uh, you know, gets off the helicopter, goes up to the top of the steps, clearly is, is straining for air takes off his mask and then goes inside uh, and and says, you can't let it dominate you. No, no, of course you can't let it dominate you, but you can take the safety precautions that exist and the president and the people around him haven't. Uh, you know, I, I, you look, I have to say, I watched the Supreme Court announcement uh, a week ago Saturday live while it was happening. And uh, I was shocked to see over a hundred people so packed together, the vast majority of them without wearing masks. And, you know, I, I, I thought to myself, this is just, again, 
uh, is breaking all the rules. And, and why do they think that somehow it's not going to affect them? Now, we don't know for sure, but I certainly have my suspicions that that event, uh, the, the announcement of Amy Coney Barrett's nomination turned out to be a super spreader. And, uh, you know, they, they an awful lot of people uh, got hurt by that. Um, you know, we know of, of what, eight, 10, 12 people who were in that crowd who ended up catching the virus. And the vast majority of them were sitting right next to each other without wearing masks. Yeah. And now you have a, a not insignificant amount of the U.S. government that has to quarantine because of it. Um, and it does strike me like something that that another administration would not have so vigorously lent into having a big public gathering like that when it violates guidelines from the, their own government. Um, you know, regardless of whether or not you've tested negative that morning, um, you know, the general public's not allowed to have big gatherings indoors like that. Um, well, that was outdoors, but it was outdoors but, when they moved inside afterwards. Yeah. I mean, there was a much smaller group inside. No, it, it, sure. it, 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 it was reckless. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and a lot of people paid the price when you see, I think it's 18 people, not that all of them were at that event, but 18 people in the president's general circle uh, have, have tested positive. Um, I don't see how you can call it anything but reckless. And, you know, you've seen it throughout the campaign with uh, holding these big rallies, uh, thousands of people without masks. Uh, I know the president says it's outdoors, but you, you wonder how many people caught COVID as a result of that. Now, you, you brought up uh, Trump's rather dramatic turn to the White House on Monday from Walter Reed. He, you know, he flew on Marine One back to the White House, made a sort of uh, uh, an, a curious hmm. appearance on the balcony where he appeared to be kind of gasping for air. And then he released these action-packed videos where he said, we should not be afraid of the virus. You've covered Washington for decades now. Have you ever seen anything like that? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I haven't. Um, it, 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 I can't, look, I, I and I've been pretty vocal about this uh, since uh, since the debate and especially since the president tested positive. You know, the problem is that is that I, I think that this question of following safety rules, wearing a mask, of social distancing, um, staying away from big crowds outside, let alone inside. Um, you know, these are the these are the guidelines of the top. Uh, epidemiologists, infectious disease experts in the country, this should be a matter of science and public health, not a matter of politics. And the idea that whether you wear a mask or don't has been turned into a political loyalty test, I think is, uh, um, it, it, it is very counterproductive. We, it, it, if, if, it's, if, if you have people like Anthony Fauci uh, who's been the top infectious disease expert for the country since the 1980s saying, wear a mask, you should wear a mask. And it shouldn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, follow the science, listen to the experts. And to the degree that this has been turned into a political loyalty uh, test, I, I, I think that's, uh, that's a shame. What I find so odd about that, too, is that you have the, the White House will will come out and tell reporters, you know, uh, President Donald Trump has worn a mask on multiple occasions. He's very proud to wear a mask. And then 
on the flip side, he'll be mocking Joe Biden, his his opponent, for wearing a mask at the, at the debate that you moderated. It, it there seems to be a, it, an incongruent message coming from the White House on a lot of those safety measures, um, and I I can't imagine that that's helping him at least in the in the run up to the general election, where this has to be the biggest issue that people are voting on. Well, uh, you just look at the polls. The last Fox News poll: Who do you trust more to handle the coronavirus? Uh, 52% said Biden, uh, 44%, I think, said said Trump. And um, that was before the president uh, caught the virus and, and got sick and was hospitalized. So, um, you know, this question of, of, of how you respond to the virus, again, it, it's not a matter of being scared of it or, or letting it dominate your life. I really think that's a, a false... Uh, choice that's being presented there, a straw man, it's simply a question of, of following the science and taking the proper precautions. And right now, before we have a, um, a vaccine, the best, by all accounts, and I don't know anybody who criticizes this, that the, the, the best way you can protect yourself from catching the virus, not talking about what happens once you've got it and how you get treated afterwards, but the best way you can protect yourself from catching the virus is to wear a mask and to be socially distanced. And I don't know why anybody wouldn't, you know, would disregard that. I wanted to, to ask one thing about your your interview this weekend with with the Trump campaign advisor, Steve Cortez. You you seemed a little frustrated that you weren't interviewing anyone from the White House. And instead of getting updates about the hospitalized president's health from a White House official, you were getting it from a Trump campaign official. Do you have any idea why the White House wasn't providing someone to speak about this for the Sunday shows? And do you think that its extent that the sort of White House's, I guess, reluctance to uh, have anyone but Trump speak for his own health has extended into this week? Well, I, you know, I again, I can't say why, but it, it you know, remember when the decision was being made and we waited until um Saturday, you know, normally we have a guest by Thursday, certainly by Friday. Now we were in into midday Saturday and the White House was still uh, saying, well, we're thinking about it. And, uh, you know, it, if you remember at that point on Saturday, you, you had this something again I've, I've never seen where the president's doctor put out a, a very rosy picture of the president's health. And then as soon as it was over, uh, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, supposedly as a background official, but since he people could see him on camera, they knew who it was, giving a utterly different um, account of what the president's situation was. So, you know, I, they obviously were in some disarray, and uh, at least according to reports, the president was very unhappy with, uh, you know, the, the the somewhat more downbeat portrayal that, that Meadows was giving. So, you know, I clearly, they didn't have their act together and they didn't want to want to be out there. And I should also note that Dr. Sean Conley said that on Saturday, the president, or he, he kind of comically dodged around questions about whether the president had been given oxygen. Right. And only to come out on Sunday at a press conference and say, well, yes, the president was given oxygen on, on Friday. Um, and which, you know, that uh, the idea that, that, that the White House cannot just give a clear message of what the president's health was, I think probably alarmed a lot of reporters. I'm sure it alarmed you. Well, it didn't alarm me. I look. I spent uh, six years in the in the White House briefing room, and you know, you learn uh, the word games that are played. And when uh, Dr. Conley 
was talking uh, about he is is not on oxygen and refused to say whether he had been on oxygen. Um, you know, that was a, a big tell. It was obvious to me at that point that that, you know, I wasn't I wouldn't have gone on the air and said it, but I certainly would have raised the question. You know, it reminded me of the Bill Clinton deposition in the Paula Jones case when he said it, 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 it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is uh, that 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 felt very Clintonian to me. I, I did think that the doctor had a, had a good knack for telegraphing sort of what reporters should ask questions about. Now, I want to talk about the debate a little bit since this is a media podcast. Um, it was a fairly chaotic affair. I think it's safe to say. You gave an interview to the New York Times immediately after and described it as a missed opportunity and said you were sad at the way that it had turned out. Now that we're a week away, do you still have that same view of it? Well, I have two views of it. Um, I, I still am sad that it was not the serious um, discussion of the issues uh, and, and of their different positions, both what they've done in the past and where they would take the country going forward that I had planned for and that I hope to conduct. So to that degree, it's still a disappointment. On the other hand, I've come increasingly to feel that you know, debates, what's, what's the point to debates? To, to be revealing, for people to be able to see uh, the two candidates and and to be able to to uh, suss out the differences between them. And I think that in the end, um, the the debate ended up being extremely revealing, uh, both in terms of, of conduct and in terms of policy. And so that to that degree, while it wasn't the debate I had planned, I think it actually uh, performed a, a valuable function. Yeah, you know, I, I noticed some defenders of the president were accusing Biden of interrupting as well. You know, the sort the, the, the takeaway from the, the general event, I thought, was that Trump was sort of attempting to derail it or at least fluster uh, Biden by just pummeling him with interruptions and questions. But there was on on the, from the Trump's Trump's defenders this claim that, that Joe Biden was equally to blame for it, the debate going off the rails. It sounds like in, in your interviews after the event that you think that that's nonsense. Do you, do you think both candidates were to a certain extent to blame for what happened? Um, you know, people have pointed out, which I didn't uh, realize that the first interruption or the first two interruptions were were on the part of the vice president. Although, frankly, they were in the course of, of, of what's called a free discussion. It, it, you know, Fox News, somebody, some poor fellow had to do to count every interruption. And frankly, I don't know how you do it because sometimes there were interruptions to the interruptions. But they came up with a number of uh, uh, that that the president had interrupted Biden or me 145 times. I think Biden was less than half that many. And, uh, you, you know, I, I don't think there's any question that any fair minded person who watched the debate would think that they were equally to blame for for what, you, you know, for preventing a serious discussion of the issues in a, in, in a uh you know, a, a useful back and forth from happening. I think clearly the president bore primary responsibility for that. And what do you think he was trying to do there? Do you think there was a strategy behind that? Or or do you think he just sort of couldn't control himself and, and felt the need to butt in and, and interrupt? Well, you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to try to put myself in the president's head and try to figure out what was behind it. I, I tend to think that originally the president thought he could fluster 
Biden and who we have seen can be flustered and you know, yeah. has not performed so well in some debates and does lose his train of thought <laughs> that he thought he could do that. Um, and, and, you know, that's while not, I, I, I think, much fun to watch, uh, it was a legitimate political strategy. But after about 15 minutes, it seemed to me that when it was clear that he wasn't flustering Biden uh, and, and in fact was making his conduct the big issue, he should have gone to plan B and, and he didn't. And, and, you know, the interesting thing about it is that when you look back at some of Biden's answers, um, he, you know, he, he, he wasn't great uh, that night. Uh, at one point he seemed like he was for the, the green new deal before I questioned him and he said, Oh no, I'm not for the green new deal. And I think had, had, had the president gone to, to plan B, which might've been let Biden speak more, uh, and perhaps get himself in some trouble and then, you know, pick that apart, counterpunch. Um, I think that might have been more effective. But to the degree that that the president dominated the stage and dominated the speaking time, um, he he prevented, he, I think, in a certain sense, he protected Biden from himself. Uh, so I, I just thought it was a failure of, of tactics to say, well, this isn't working, so let me try something else. Yeah, you know, I, I do agree. It, it felt at the beginning, I thought that Trump might have the upper hand on Biden just by, you know, pummeling him and just sort of wearing him down. And, you know, Biden, as you said, is, can easily lose his train of thought. But yeah, at a certain point, it just it just became annoying, particularly when you would try and uh, try and sort of intervene and make sure that, that, that everyone had the chance to speak. But for the record, I thought you handled it as well as anyone could have. And that criticism of your inability to magically silence someone who refused to be quiet was sort of misplaced. Well, I, Aiden, I think you're a very wise person and a very discerning <laughs> person. You know, I, I look, obviously afterwards you have some second thoughts and the speech I gave about 45 minutes in when I said, I think the country would be better served if we had fewer interruptions. And then uh, the president said, well, he's doing it too. And I said, not as much as you. Do I wish I had done that 20 minutes in rather than 45 minutes in. Sure. Mm. You know, I'd make a couple of points. One, um, you know, my initial instinct, and I think good moderators' initial instinct is you don't want to stop the clock and and become a big player in the debate. So I was trying to let them, uh, you know, have have the back and forth and and trying to... keep as light a hand as the moderator as possible. Mm. Um, Two, you know, looking back on it now, we all realize, well, that was kind of a mess. And but you didn't at each point, you didn't, you know, five minutes in, 10 minutes in, you didn't realize that. And thirdly, and I think this is the most important point, it wouldn't made a damn bit of difference. Uh, When I even though I did 45 minutes in with half of the debate still to go, called the president on the carpet for for interrupting uh, and and preventing a a good, sensible uh, exchange of of ideas, he didn't change his behavior one iota. So, you know, in the end, I don't think it was going to matter. And you did face some criticism from hosts at your own network for how you moderated the debate. Uh, Mark Levin and Greg Gutfeld complained that you were perhaps biased against Trump. What did you make of that allegation? Well, um, I don't take it very seriously. Okay. That's a fair response. I, I will say, you know, 
it's no secret that that Fox News is Trump's favorite network. And not he occasionally always the, not always these days. He's pretty critical. Well, he, what, he, what happened to Fox? <laughs> I tend to it's my theory that that's a little bit more performative. Um, and but he does tend to, he, he gets worked up enough and and very every so often he'll attack Fox on Twitter. Actually, it's actually becoming more frequent lately. He, he attacked you last night on Twitter, I will say. Do you think that it, it, it's sort of funny that that you have become this this target for him? Uh, and, you know, the, the, you've become also a target of some of his more ardent supporters. I mean, the MAGA crowd is, is fairly mad at you since since the last debate. Really? I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, Aiden, I'm quite aware. Your, aware your of inbox that. can attest to that. I mean, here's the, here's the point. I have spent uh, a half century in this business trying to play it down the middle. And, uh, and, and I think I've done a pretty good job of it. And I think it's one of the reasons that I was uh, the first and only Fox moderator to, to, to handle a presidential debate in 2016. And I was the only moderator in 2016 who was asked to do it again in 2020. Um, and, and, you know, if you look at the, at the questions I had prepared and the debate that I had, had you know, had wanted to moderate, uh, I think there were plenty uh, of, of tough questions for both sides. I mean, for instance, one of the things I find more non, pretty nonsensical is I'm criticized for asking uh, Biden, uh, you know, was he going, if the Republicans pushed ahead and uh, uh, confirmed Amy Coney Barrett to the court, the question he has ducked, would he push to end the filibuster? Would he uh, push to pack the court? I was the one who asked that question. He mm. ducked it and people will say, well, you, you didn't follow up. Well, it, why, just, you know, go to the videotape as uh, Warner Wolf used to say, a sportscaster. <laughs> if you watch, I couldn't get a word in edgewise because the president was all over him about, you know, what was he going to do and, and, and asking the follow-ups. And frankly, I'd rather have the president ask the question than, sure. uh, than me. You know, I, I, didn't get to a lot of the questions I, I uh, wanted to ask because we spent so much time. Uh, I spent so much time playing traffic cop, but I was the one who asked uh, Biden about his reluctance to to reopen schools and the economy. I was the one who asked Biden about his uh, economic plan uh, calling for four trillion dollars in new taxes. And wasn't that going to hurt the economy coming out of a recession? So, you know, I I. I understand that uh, people aren't happy with me. And yes, I did have to take on the president because he was the prime um, the prime offender when it came to interrupting. And also, if you believe the polls, the president lost the debate. So they got to blame somebody and they don't want to blame the president. Yeah. And yeah, I will say that a lot of your the tough questions that you asked of Biden were his answers were cut short by the president interrupting and asking follow up questions. Now, there, there was one question that, that made a lot of headlines, and it's when you asked the president if he would condemn white supremacist groups. He offered a sort of muddled response and ended up telling the Proud Boys somehow to, quote, stand back and stand by, which was a little odd. Did you think that that was going to be a layup question for him when you wrote it and asked him? Um. I didn't think it would be a layup, but I, I thought it would be an opportunity for him to do. Look, he's been asked about uh, them before and mm. he has has refused to condemn them. And, uh, you know, this was in the context of me asking Biden about 
Antifa and what they had done, you know, the, the, the riots in Portland and why hadn't he ever uh, urged the, uh, the, you know, the, the mayor of Portland or the governor of Oregon to crack down, to stop the riots? Well, now I was asking the president the equivalent question because the Proud Boys uh, had, had been involved in counter demonstrations and it added to the violence. And, you know, here's here's an opportunity for you. And, you know, I didn't know what he'd say because I know he's reluctant sometimes to um, to call out right wing extremist groups. And listen, it wasn't like he misspoke for the next day or two. He refused to condemn them. And I think he finally did in a in a tweet in the middle of the night. So, um, you know, that's I, I, I can ask the questions. I can't answer them. He did. Yeah, he did answer it a, a couple of days later. Um, I did find it funny that the, the White House press, press secretary was touting his response of sure during the debate as a sort of forceful uh, condemnation of white supremacist groups. Um, yeah. So, I mean, did you in in preparing for this debate in particular, did you have a feeling that there would be this kind of curveball or were you preparing it like you prepare for any other previous debate? Curveball in terms of the president's behavior. Yeah. Never in my wildest dreams did I think he would act the way he acted. Never in my wildest dreams. You know, we did a debate uh, in 2016 with between I, I moderated between uh, Clinton and Trump. And sure, there were some tense moments, but it was a normal debate. They each side gave their uh, answers. You know, and and here's the interesting thing: when when the president first started interrupting. Uh, Biden, my reaction was positive. And this is another reason why I didn't jump in right away, because I think debates so often can turn into parallel news conferences where you ask Biden about his policy and then you ask Trump about his policy and they aren't engaging. You you know, the, the best moments in a debate, um, going back to uh, 2016, when, when Clinton was calling Trump a, a puppet uh, of Putin and put, uh, Trump fired back and said, you're the puppet. And uh, they went on back and forth on a, on a variety of issues. Um, you know, that those are the memorable moments. So you, you don't want to stop that. It's just that it it got out of control. And and uh, it never occurred to me based on, um, you know, I've, I've, I've interviewed the president a bunch of times as recently as July when we had a fairly contentious interview, but I was able to ask my questions and he answered. And you know, I don't. We, I think, they were reasonably happy with it. I was happy with it. I thought it was a good exchange, and the debate that I did in in 2016, I never dreamt that he would behave the way he did. Mm. Now, I I do you your interviews with Trump, the the one on one interviews, are actually some of my some of my favorites. And it, Again, it, do you? I, you're completely <laughs> right. I appreciate that. Uh, do, do you not approach them differently to how you would be approaching a normal interview with someone? I mean, I, I imagine when you're interviewing Trump, you you it's sort of baked in that there are probably going to be a few more false statements made than your interview with the average subject. Do you have to sort of be ready with fact checks there, you know, in the room? And, and you know, is there is there a different level of preparation that goes into interviewing Trump um, that might well, extend also to the debates? <clears throat> well, I, I'd say a couple of things. First of all, um, you know, the, the only time I, I have interviewed him as a regular citizen back um, a decade ago, but the only times I've interviewed him in the last 
five years have been as either a presidential candidate or as the president. So mm. that obviously involves a different level of preparation. And, you know, I, I, I think that that because the president sometimes says things that don't turn out to be true, you and 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 will repeat them. So they're somewhat predictable that he's going to say them that not that you want to come in with, uh, you know, with the facts, because if you're going to challenge him, as happened in the July interview, he's going to come back and say you're wrong. And, you know, you want to be on firm footing in, in mm-hmm. case you're going to, uh, you, you, that's going to happen. You know, I'm not, I don't know whether he's going to say he's going to stick to the facts or, or say something different, but if he says something different, I want to be prepared. In terms of the difference between an interview and a debate, those are totally different. When I'm, when I'm preparing an interview, I'm preparing to engage with the, um, with the subject of the interview. If I'm interviewing the president, that's me engaging with President Trump. The, the whole point of a debate is to stay as much out of the line of fire as possible. So, I mean, so many of the questions I asked were kind of, why are you right and your opponent wrong? I was, you know, I was trying to set the table and get them to go uh, at each other and, uh, and, and, you know, recede into the background. I, <laughs> unfortunately, that's, it didn't work out that way, but uh, that was my plan going in. I, debate is very different from an interview. Now, last question. Steve Scully of C-SPAN is moderating the next debate, if it happens. Now, we know that the president has coronavirus. Both the president and Joe Biden have signaled that they want to go ahead with the next debate. If it does go ahead, do you have any advice for Steve Scully? Yeah, I do. And and look, I will the president continue with the same tactic of constantly interrupting? I hope not. And I kind of expect he won't. But if that were an issue, Steve has an advantage that I didn't, which is that it's a town hall. And Mm -hmm. and I would use that as a weapon. If either of them interrupts, I would say, um, you know, these are real people with real problems. And they're asking you for what your policies and what your solutions are. Would you please let them, you know, let both you and the the other candidates speak and and answer their questions. So I would use the fact that it's a town hall, the fact that there are real people there, that the fact that it isn't just two politicians and a reporter. Um, I try to use that to my advantage. But uh, all I can really say is good luck, Steve. I think we'll end it there. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you, Aiden. Thank you for listening to this episode of the interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and look out for our coverage of my conversation with Chris Wallace on Mediaite.com. We'll see you next week.